welcome to the GLD podcast, Governance Uncovered, Local Politics and Development, supported by the Swedish Research Council. This month, we talked to GLD Senior Research Fellow, Kristen Gao, about her work on post-conflict reconciliation in Iraq. Kristen tells us about her study on the drivers of forgiveness versus revenge among diverse groups in Iraq, and how her research can help promote long-term peace. You can find more information about Kristen and her work in the description below. As always, this podcast is hosted by GLD director Ellen Lust. We hope you enjoyed the episode. So I'm pleased to have with me today Kristen Gao, who's a senior researcher at GLD and with Mara Revkin has just written a very interesting piece that looks at how Iraqis see ISIS returnees or those who are coming back from having worked with ISIS in some capacity. So in order to give our sort of listeners just a sense of what the background is of this and the situation in Iraq, Kristen, maybe you can give us just an overview of the problem that you're looking at. Yeah, sure. First off, I actually just want to say how grateful I am to Ellen and the GLD program, not only for the funding of aspects of this project, but also for introducing me to Mara in the first place. Mara Revkin was a PhD student of Ellen's, and she came to Gothenburg to workshop a survey that she was planning on running in Iraq. And one of those questions actually was, what affects willingness to reintegrate former ISIS collaborators? And I was very interested in the topic. And so I talked to Mara about it and we joined forces. And I think her rich uh, knowledge and long-term fieldwork in Iraq paired with uh, my uh, survey skills and my knowledge of experimental methods made for a really nice uh, collaboration and resulted in this work. So thank you so much, Ellen. So again, this question, what happens after conflict when you have an enemy group that has sought to take over a territory and has attempted to govern it. And once that enemy group is uh, kicked out of the territory or defeated, uh, it leaves behind all of these civilians who have collaborated to varying extents uh, with that enemy group. And uh, unfortunately, many of whom are seen as sort of full supporters of this uh, enemy group, whether they were in reality or not. So Our work takes on this question of how does variation in types of collaboration with an enemy affect perceptions of what would be legitimate justice for such collaborators after the conflict ends? And how also does the type of collaboration affect willingness to forgive and to reintegrate uh, such collaborators? So in the case of Iraq, for example, At its peak, uh, the Islamic State, uh, also known as IS or ISIS, captured 40% of the country's territory, and it ruled over 5 million people. This is just in Iraq. So that population is now widely perceived as collectively complicit in the group's uh, crimes. And the government is currently facing the monumental challenge of reintegrating this population, mostly back into their uh, local communities. So the problem is also that, um, at least in Iraq specifically, Authorities have taken a rather heavy-handed approach to all of this and have failed to differentiate between sort of voluntary and involuntary collaboration, uh, more serious and lesser serious offenses. Moreover, even right now, actually, the question is really important. There are numerous IDP camps, these internally displaced persons camps in Iraq and also in in Syria. And uh, right now, the Iraqi government is seeking to shut those down and close them and force those families to return to the communities. It's an estimated 240,000 people 
And right now, of course, in the dead of winter, these people then are facing a really tough decision between homelessness or trying to go back to their communities where many of them fear for their lives because they are seen as having collaborated with the Islamic State. And there are many locals in their communities who would seek vigilante justice and retribution for the suffering that they endured due to Islamic State. I'm just wondering, when we say that you know, people are afraid of going home, What's the system of justice like in Iraq in the sense that is the decision to punish an, an Iraqi returner, is that made at the, through courts? Is it made just at the individual or local level? Is there fear about neighbors? I know that your, your survey hasn't addressed that exactly, but if you can give us a sense of how the justice system at least is addressing this, that we can then sort of put this into context. Yes, of course. So with questions of reconciliation and reintegration, as well as justice, <laughs> there are obviously multiple levels. Uh, on the formal uh, state level, uh, Iraq's anti-terrorism law applies here. And so this, this law criminalizes membership in any terrorist group. And it's, it's quite harsh. It doesn't really require proof of a specific criminal act. And so that means that pretty much anyone with a plausible connection to the Islamic State can easily be sentenced to very harsh punishments, which include life imprisonment um, or even capital punishment. Um, and technically the life imprisonment sentence is the minimum punishment allowed by the law. So, so this has resulted actually in at least 8,000 accused collaborators of being convicted in trials. These trials often last less than 30 minutes and they have very, very high conviction rates. Mars, um, her estimate is around 98%. When we look at the sort of notion of what it means to be a member of the terrorist group, then you said that that doesn't necessarily require proof. Does it depend on what kind of activities you've done? I mean, I know you've looked at least how it, people view the various ways in which a person can have been complicit, if you will, underneath the ISIS regime. So is there a way in which we technically there's a certain, you know, a certain level of com complicity or a certain level of compliance that is considered to be a member or is it kind of open to interpretation? Yeah, again, I think that matters at um, which level you're looking at. Unfortunately, from what we've understood, both again from uh, Mara's fieldwork and from uh, reports coming out of Iraq, the Iraqi state has this massive problem right now with you know, trying to get through, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of cases. And I think that that is obviously, you know, it's also a state that doesn't have a huge capacity for dealing with all of these cases. So I think that's sort of what's motivating these quick trials. And then of course, anytime anything is rushed and there's not enough time to really investigate, et cetera, and find evidence, then you are going to start getting more of this sort of one punishment fits all approach. And that's, that's really, really difficult. I think when it comes down to, I think there are two other main levels. So one is sort of the community level in itself. So Iraq is a very tribally organized or oriented society, especially in these areas where the Islamic State was ruling. So in the, in the Sunni dominated areas. So at that level, there is also tribal justice, which of course um, our study can't really get so far into this, but we have other work that at least dabbles in it. It tries to open up that black box a little bit of how does tribal justice or, or potentially even what does the Islamic religion, for example, say about reconciliation and retribution. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of, at least the tribal justice mechanisms uh, do consider collective punishments. And so 
Um, a lot of this will depend on if individual collaborators have their own tribe backing them um, in addition to what they've actually done or what they can actually be, what there's actually evidence to accuse them of. And then finally, of course, there is the individual level. And so how different individuals see ISIS collaborators, I think is done. It's very personal. And I think it, it's also very specific to the collaborator. So if I'm walking down the street in my community and I pass a person who I know is a former ISIS collaborator, what is my response to that person? I think that's very personally subjective. I mean, I would say that's the level at which um, our work deals with most closely. So basically, you've looked at a lot of different ways in which individuals and other Iraqis see people who are returning from ISIS or from ISIS territories. Can you give us a sense of what you've looked at with regards to how they see these people who we might call collaborators and then how they see sort of appropriate punishment? Yeah, our work on uh, this variation in sort of collaborator engagement is motivated by a lot of previous scholarly studies on conflict that describe in rich detail the wide range of engagement options available to citizens from defiance to full support of armed groups. And an important point is from this sort of observational work is that there are no hard and fast groups of victims or perpetrators in such settings and that the lines are actually very blurry. So uh, our work then tried to take this more qualitative insights and to use a more quantitative method in order to test causally how this spectrum or variation in collaboration, um, and especially in individual collaborator culpability, then affects sort of perceptions of what should be done with these collaborators. So specifically, we randomized features of hypothetical profiles of former ISIS collaborators. And those features included, first and most importantly, the type of act that they were involved in. The scale of collaboration that we chose to test tries to range or create a range of collaborator intimacy and physical distance from violence. So the, the most violent collaborator act we have in our scale is fighting for the Islamic State. But there were also many civilians who were doing things like providing support to fighters, for instance, uh, working as a cook for them. So that's uh, the second type of act in our scale. Um, of course, there are also collaborators who are just engaged socially with these fighters, not, not actively supporting their fight, but for instance, uh, a woman being married to an IS fighter. So that's our third collaborative act in our spectrum. Fourth, we included what was also another common act of collaboration under the Islamic State, which was working in the municipality. So uh, in this capacity, you are helping the Islamic State to function but you are not actively engaging in violence or on the front lines or anything like that. And then fifth, our collaborator act that is seen as the furthest from violence is someone who simply paid taxes to the Islamic State. So many civilians who are experiencing enemy governance end up having to pay some sort of tax or provide food or shelter, et cetera, to enemy combatants or enemy leaders. Um, we also consider other attributes of collaborators that we thought might matter and would also make our hypothetical profiles seem more real. And so these include gender, age, and whether or not the collaborator is a member of the respondent's tribe. As noted, almost all, at least Iraqi Sunnis, who are the group that made up the Islamic State, have a tribal affiliation. 
And we thought that, you know, gender or age might sort of signal some level of agency behind the engagement in the collaboration. Um, it might also trigger sympathy or empathy uh, with a collaborator. Um, and then we embed this experiment in a larger survey. So the experiment is randomizing which of these five collaborator acts the target has engaged in, as well as um, these aspects of their identity, such as gender, age, tribal membership, independently of each other. And it allows us then to statistically back out what independent effect each of these features of a potential collaborator might have on attitudes. We look at two different outcomes. Uh, the first is punishment, what, what the respondent thinks is just punishment. Um, and again, here we sort of offer a scale of punishments ranging from no punishment at all to six months of community service. Note that these two sort of least harsh punishments are not usually prescribed by the courts uh, in Iraq. Uh, the third one is three years of imprisonment. This one also is tends to be a much lighter sentence than what is normally received by those who are charged with uh, collaboration with uh, Islamic State. Then there's 15 years of jail time and capital punishment. So we did validate this uh, scale. We made sure that uh, respondents actually agreed um, in our pilot before running the full experiment that this you know, sort of scale of punishments captured most of the types of punishments that people would actually want to see. And so I think it was, it was something very small. It's over 90% agreed that the punishment scale like represented what they wanted. And those that wrote in responses to the contrary, most of them actually just wanted different forms of, for example, capital punishment or um, maybe different forms of restorative measures like community service, different periods of time, et cetera. So again, we embed these experiments within this broader survey of 1,458 residents of Mosul. It's a state that was uh, ruled by the Islamic State for three years. Um, and we ran the survey in March and April of 2018, which was just eight months after um, IS was militarily defeated. If I was being surveyed in your survey, can you maybe give me an example of what I would have heard? Because I think it's extremely helpful to think about the different kind of levels. A, a person was a janitor, they were married to an ISIS fighter, et cetera. But of course, I think it's important also for listeners, who, especially who don't know survey methods as much and survey experiments, to realize that any individual respondent, anybody who's being given the survey, isn't going to hear every one of these, right? So they're only going to be given one hypothetical person that we're going to describe. Maybe give us a sense of what that question would sound like to a person who's, who's taking the survey. So the prompt uh, read specifically, I am going to read you some hypothetical scenarios about people from Mosul who are being prosecuted for their past cooperation with IS. These people now want to move back into your neighborhood. I would like you to choose the type of punishment that you view as appropriate for this person. This person is a man who is 35 years of age. He is a member of the, and we randomized the tribal membership so that it would either show someone that's a member of your tribe or not. This person was cook for Islamic State fighters. And then we ask, a thorough investigation concluded that this is the only act of collaboration that the person committed. I have ordered the following punishments from least harsh to most harsh. I would like you to choose the type of punishment you deem as appropriate for this former ISIS collaborator who now wants to move back into your neighborhood. And what did you find? 
unlike uh, previous quantitative research in this field, which tends to just focus on, you know, the most egregious type of collaboration, involvement of violence, or uh, ask questions about armed groups as a whole, our study finds that it's really important to sort of widen the analytical lens to consider a broader spectrum of enemy collaboration. Um, this will help us then to stop projecting a false dichotomy between victims and perpetrators that's found in much of the existing research on conflict. So our results demonstrate that variation in the type of enemy collaboration, which we think you know, links closely to perceptions of culpability behind engagement in enemy collaboration, is a very important determinant of preferences for post-conflict punishment and forgiveness. And so the finding is, is very strong. So we, you know, we originally thought that that both the respondent identity characteristics and that the collaborator identity characteristics that, you know, the ones that we randomized, the gender, age, tribal affiliation, we thought that those would actually interact with these differing acts of collaboration to produce varying perceptions of appropriate punishment and forgiveness. But instead we find actually that really just the act is, is very important. It's a very strong determinant of these attitudes. And um, we sort of argue then that by failing to consider this variation in collaborator culpability, uh, other scholars have missed this potentially strong determinant of preferences for punishment and forgiveness that are important for understanding post-conflict realities on the ground and how to encourage lasting peace. More observationally also, we explore some um, mechanisms that could be driving or could be mediating the effects of collaborator culpability. And so here we decided to look at or mostly focus on, on two main hypotheses. The first one we derived from previous literature and it's known as the revenge hypothesis. And this is the idea that somebody who was personally victimized um, at the hands, hands of an enemy group will seek you know, more retribution and will be less willing to forgive. Um, and we do find some evidence for that factor. So we had questions then that asked um, our respondents, uh, not only if they had experienced the injury or death of a family member, but had also experienced other sort of personal victimization situations. So for example, if their uh, home was destroyed by IS or confiscated. And we find that, okay, that is an important determinant. Um, it does correlate with harsher punishment and also less willingness to forgive. Although the effect is not as strong as the second mechanism that we were uh, interested in testing. And uh, we didn't find uh, very much research in conflict uh, or on conflict specifically that, that considers the second mechanism, which is the perceived volition behind the act of collaboration. Instead, we looked uh, to studies of like criminology and social psychology. So in the criminology work, they're looking at just regular criminals and they find that the perceived intent behind the act is an important determinant of punishment. And in the social psychology research, uh, scholars are usually studying sort of these personal intimate relationships between couples. And there they also find that if something was purposely done, then it is harder to forgive. And then we also find that this perceived volition behind an act of collaboration is a very strong determinant also of how our respondents thought about punishment and forgiveness. And in particular, also in interaction with the different types of acts, it, it really can, can make a big difference. So particularly for taxpayers, we found that a taxpayer who was perceived as engaging in the act voluntarily uh, will suffer 
punishment at the same level as of someone who was much more intimate with violence, for example, the wives of fighters or the cooks for fighters. Whereas if they were perceived as involuntarily engaging in this, they're much more likely to receive no punishment or just community service. So that, that was a big difference. So I want to take you back just for a second in terms of the main finding, because I think it's, it's really fascinating. What you're finding is that we might have thought that, for example, a woman who was a cook would be seen more leniently or given a more lenient punishment than a man who was a cook, right? Or somebody who is from your tribe who was a fighter might be seen as more forgivable than somebody who was from another tribe who was a fighter. And I understand that what you're finding is that none of those things matter so much, right? That it doesn't matter if they're old or young. It doesn't matter if they're a woman or a man, that if an old man has done the same thing as a young woman, that it's basically seen the same, that what really drives this is the question of what has the person done? Is that, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So there are, I mean, this is not to say that when I run every single analysis of every scenario, um, that there's nothing there. For example, we did have a small finding that women are less likely to be forgiven, women collaborators. And also, interestingly, on the tribal membership, actually, co-tribal members are actually punished harsher. And that's um, in line with some other research that finds that there are these self-policing mechanisms in tribes that help to prevent conflicts from spiraling out of control. And so you maybe sort of expect more of your own and you punish them harsher should they break the norms of the tribal group as a whole. But of course, in comparison, the effects of these things are so much smaller than, than the act itself. So that is why we're saying that it's really the act that matters. I'm wondering too, if there's a way in which this is partly about who you don't expect to be doing this, right? So the gender finding is striking, right? That you can have women punished more and which, which I would have expected them to actually be in a sense, kind of punished less the kind of the weak woman notion. But what you're finding is, you know, almost it's going against the idea of what a woman does, as well as the idea about how you might think of them. I mean, I don't know if your survey is able to actually get into that mechanism, or you can tell me if if that's wrong, but it's striking, actually. No, we're not able to get into that specific mechanism. But yeah, it is actually very in line also with a lot of qualitative research on women trying to reintegrate back into their communities after having been, for example, kidnapped by a rebel group. And it's often seen as much harder for them, even more so than fighters for that group. So women uh, suffer a a harsh penalty. Just to to go to your mechanisms for a minute, your point is that it's about whether or not you're seen as voluntarily engaging, right? Is Is the main driver a more important driver? Is that, is that how I should understand this? And it seems to me that it matters more for taxpaying than it does for fighting, or do you see it across all of the different activities that a person can engage in? Let me first preface this by saying that uh, once we move into these sort of respondent perceptions, then we are no longer making causal claims. So um, this is just a correlative analysis, which I know just methods-minded listeners will get. And if you're not methods-minded, then don't worry about it. But um, I just want to clarify that. (laughs) But secondly, yes, the, the finding mostly applies to taxpayers. So it's not the same across the board. So what I think is going on there then is that when you have more egregious acts, like a fighter, for example, this voluntary or involuntary thing, this mechanism is not going to matter. People just have their opinions of what should be done with you, regardless of if you did it voluntarily or not. But then that's why this scale really matters, right? Is that when you get to um, maybe something that is not such an egregious act or not seen as so egregious, then this this sort of perception of volition can really matter and make a difference. 
So what are the policy implications? If I'm an Iraqi official, for instance, then how should I see what you found? Yeah, so within Iraq specifically, the policy implications are rather large. So Iraq has a very strong, salient social identity cleavage between Shias and Sunnis. So these are two different sects of Islam. Shias are actually the majority population. And in the past, under Saddam Hussein, they were oppressed and discriminated against by the minority Sunni group of which Saddam Hussein was a member. Of course, then once the U.S. invasion in 2003 got rid of Saddam Hussein and a government that was more democratically elected was put into place, then Shias dominated that government. So we have to go through this uh, whole history of what's gone on in Iraq, in particular since that transition of power, because it's very important for now uh, what's going on on the ground there. So what's happened then is Sunnis have, have lost power. There was this whole program of debathification, which meant that anyone that was associated with Saddam Hussein's bath party, uh, which was predominantly Sunni Arabs, they lost their jobs. And they that's built up, obviously, a lot of grievances among that population. And so some analysts even say that the creation of Islamic State, which is, you know, comes out of the remnants of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, was fueled by resentment over the collective punishment of Sunnis through this sort of debathification process and the incarceration of many of them. So what's important then is that, of course, all governments, when they're facing like a post-conflict situation, they have to walk this fine line between both under punishment of these uh, enemy collaborators, which would then potentially lead to vigilante justice on the ground. That's when people on the ground feel that justice has not been served, forming what's known in social psychology as this injustice gap. It makes reconciliation very difficult and forgiveness almost impossible. And again, could lead to victims sort of taking justice into their own hands and exacting it. Of course, then the opposite can be true. Overpunishment can also be perceived as victor's justice and it can delegitimize transitional justice efforts. So of course, policymakers also don't want that. So what's really important then in Iraq right now is it seems that there's this very harsh one punishment fits all policy uh, that could be creating grievances among especially the Sunni population. And of course, uh, then there is this concern, this widespread concern among those who are following the politics of the region that there could be an emergence of ISIS 2.0. And of course, we all don't want that. So, you know, we believe that popular opinion data on this topic can really help policymakers to find a middle ground, right? So there has to be sort of a middle ground between both what is appropriate for punishment, but also so that punishment is perceived as legitimate by the population at large um, in order for there to be lasting peace. I mean, this is great advice for the Iraqi justice system and the Iraqi government. Um, are there other things that international organizations or development agencies can also do? That one is a hard one for me to answer specifically in this case, because as far as I understand, and uh, the Iraqi government has been very resistant to any foreign sort of interference or intervention in this process. They refuse to have anything like truth and reconciliation commissions, et cetera. And as I've noted, um, they're trying to deal with this massive problem quickly and then perhaps also hastily, right, by 
for example, just we'll just close the camps and we'll force them all to go back and we'll just see what happens then without sort of seeking like any evidence that shows that it's the right time to have people go back or any evidence that could help us figure out, you know, what would help these populations return and be reintegrated peacefully into their communities. So it's a dangerous policy. And uh, I unfortunately don't have all of the knowledge of how these agencies should should address it. But I do think that one step along the way is trying to gather information. And so I am actually appreciative that, for example, um, I have a future research project that will run some surveys in Iraq, and that research project has received some funding from, it's actually an arm of the Swedish government that is interested in building lasting peace in Iraq. And so that's been great that they're interested in this and, and see it as an important way to gather information on these processes. So some of your further work also moves outside of Iraq, speaking of Sweden, right? And looks at some of these same issues in Sweden. Can you tell us a little bit about what we can expect in that direction? Yeah, so I have two projects that will actually spin off of this this work. And the first one, as you mentioned, is um, in Sweden and will hopefully run soon. So this would be an online survey, of course, in the these times of pandemic. And it seeks to ask Europeans about their opinions of what should happen with their fellow citizens who traveled to Iraq and Syria in order to work with the Islamic State. So this is a real problem facing Europe and, of course, a lot of other countries as well, the United States, um, even other Arab countries, etc. But for Europe specifically, there's some 5,000 plus citizens who did this and who are also now seeking return. As citizens of the EU, they have the right to return. And in most cases, international human rights law obligate countries to accept these people back. So uh, the plan is to run a survey online and the sample will actually be divided between Swedish-speaking Swedes and Arabic-speaking Swedes. So the goal here is to try to understand how different subpopulations uh, within the country view just punishment as well as processes of reconciliation and rehabilitation and reintegration of these former ISIS collaborators. And you mentioned the the work that will be going back into Iraq. Can you tell us a little bit more in detail about that? Yes. So I also have funding from Riksbanken Jubileums Fund um, and also the Folk Bernadotte Academy that will fund three more surveys in Iraq. So this allows us to overcome another limitation of mine and Mara's work, which is that we only had a sample in Mosul. It's a sample of Sunni Arabs specifically, which were, you know, who made up 97% of, of the city's population at the time. Um, and so it, it's a sample that importantly, you know, was the group that was governed by the Islamic State. And therefore, of course, they really represent this range of collaborator roles in terms of, you know, people who maybe supported the group very strongly, those who perhaps just tried to remain very neutral and, and did the bare minimum of what they had to in order to stay alive, um, and of course, um, everything in between. That's a really interesting group to look at, but of course, then uh, there is this question of how do people who weren't governed by IS or who could never be part of the group and were actually also targeted by the group, for example, Shias, how would they view the Islamic State? So something that's important to note here, though, is that the Islamic State, it wasn't a purely identity-based conflict. So the Islamic State also targeted its own members, Sunni Muslims, as much or even more than it did outgroup members. 
but it still means that there's this sort of black box of how others in Iraq would view these Islamic State returnees. And we don't have information on that. You know, our survey was done just eight months after Islamic State left. So we can't assess, you know, how would maybe forgiveness or views of punishment vary if you were to run this at a later time. So there's a chance now to, to sort of like play with some of these variations and to try to understand then and build a more systematic model of perceptions of just punishment and reconciliation in post-conflict settings. Yeah, it's really exciting work, actually. And I'm glad to have you at GLD for many reasons, but (laughs) I think it's really, it's both, you know, given us some very much needed, just empirical understanding, particularly of how Iraqis see those who were kind of collaborators with or returning from ISIS areas, right? And I, you know, again, that's important both for, for the Iraqi government, but also for outside actors and frankly, very important in terms of our theoretical understandings of how conflict works and post-conflict reconciliation. So um, it's exciting. It's also very exciting to see it now being taken to sort of the Swedish context, right? And letting us see how your fellow Swedes, now that you're a citizen, and congratulations on that. Um, Thank you. Hopefully soon someday my fellow Swedes also, um, you know, kind of think about these issues. It's, it's really, really great work. I want to invite you to add anything else that you'd like listeners to know or anything that you feel has been overlooked. No, I I feel pretty good. I I feel like I've said my piece and I hope it was interesting and that the listeners learned something. Great. Thank you again very, very much and have a great day. You too.